see you here at the five o'clock service. And um, we are in a two-month series. Uh, we'll be continuing next month on spiritual warfare. We've done some introductory material in the last two weeks, uh, fo focusing on Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, we'll be doing more of that. But what I wanted to do today is just spend a little bit of time just teaching from the scriptures a little bit about who our enemy is and where he comes from. You know, knowing your enemy and how your enemy fights is half the battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, In order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And in that passage we see some of the schemes of the enemy. A lot of it's to do with unforgiveness and how he can get into our lives. And we'll come to that later on in the course of next month. But the principle is we're not ignorant of his schemes. We know who he is. We know where he comes from. We know his character. And therefore, we can understand how he's going to come against us. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And I think it would be fair to say that sometimes the enemy can take advantage of us as Christians because we don't know how the enemy is going to come at us. We don't know what a demonic attack would be. We don't know what the strategies are. Or as Ephesians 6 says, to stand against the wiles or schemes of the enemy. It's important to know our enemy. I remember reading about the great famous general from America in the Second World War called George Patton. He was an incredible character, a very aggressive general, and wanted to make his name. And he was sent out to the North African desert. And uh, probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest general of the whole Second World War was in fact a German general called Ernst Rommel, who had tremendous effect and victories in North Africa with very limited resources. Well, George Patton went over there and he did something that none of the other generals did. He had by his bed a book written by Rommel called Infantry Attacks. And that book was all about Rommel and how he, uh, in the First World War, made a name for himself, how he would deal with various situations in combat and battle and the principles that were in that infantry attacks that Rommel had written were the principles that he had grown and lived by. So every night by his bed, George Patton would pick up his enemy, the chief of his enemy, and he would read what Rommel believed, how Rommel had got victories, what Rommel would do in this circumstance and that circumstance. And soon he was even able, which nobody else could do, to second guess what Rommel would do and what Rommel wouldn't do. He was able to put himself in Rommel's shoe. And all the other generals, they didn't know how Rommel was coming at them. And, and although he was a great general, if you'd read him, you could understand that there were key principles that he adhered to. And so today I want to speak a little bit about what Scripture teaches us about Satan and his background, his origin, his motivation. Not teaching for the sake of teaching, but so that we like uh, George Patton, 
was with Rommel that we could have a little bit more awareness of what the enemy's plan is and what Satan wants to do. After all, when there is an enemy at war with you, they, they have a goal. They want to take a territory. They have a purpose. And so that's what we're going to do today. We don't have to worry when we're going to Scripture to see what Scripture teaches about the devil. You don't have to fear that because uh, we know that all Scripture is inspired for the purpose of profiting us for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. The danger always comes when we move outside Scripture and move too much on conjecture. Or, I mean, you can get hold of books on spiritual warfare, hardly any Scripture in it at all. If there is any Scripture, it's taken out of context. And often these people that write these books, such as Rebecca Brown, they get their revelation about Satan and spiritual warfare, not from the Bible, but they get their revelation from experiences that they've had, or angels that have visited them, or dreams that they've had, or visions that they've so-called had. Now, nothing, nothing could be more dangerous than, than trying to do that. We know that the devil comes to us like an angel of light. But if we stick to the scriptures, we're on safe ground, secure ground, and not just safe ground, we're on ground that will give us victory, understanding, and illumination. So the first thing I want to teach you today is talking about knowing our enemy is where did Satan come from? What was his origin and his fall? What can we learn from that? Now remember, the devil does have an origin. Unlike God, he's not divine. There was a time when he didn't exist. He is a created being and thus inferior and subject to his creator. One of the, the best books on looking at this is the, the book of Job, where you can see that, that Satan really wanted to have a go at Job, but, but he couldn't do anything without God's permission. God was totally in control. Well, we know also that in the uh, Garden of Eden, and we'll come to this later, that Satan came in the form of a serpent, and we see his first battle against Humanity in the form of Adam and Eve, we, we will come back to that later because it shows something about how he works, and he threw doubt on what God had said, he appealed to their vanity and their pride, he said, you will be like God, God is holding back on you, that's why God doesn't want you to eat this fruit, he doesn't want you to be like him, you can be like God, you can climb higher, God is subjecting you, oh, but God said that the day we eat of the fruit, we will die. And then he cast doubt. Did God say? He cast doubt on what God said, and he also cast doubt on God's character. So we know that he was there. But, but what else do we know about Satan? Well, if you would turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 28. This is a passage that's often used by teachers that believe that, that in Ezekiel 28, we have an insight during this Prophetic, prophetic pronouncement over the city-state of Tyre. Well, let me just back up a bit. So, we're in Ezekiel 28, but just to give you a bit of context, because I'm not going too detail here, I'm just highlighting some things. Ezekiel is prophesying against one of the richest and most powerful city-states in the world. It was the ancient city-state 
of Tyre. Now, this Tyre, it was the business capital of the world at that time. Um, if you read 1 Chronicles 14, you'll find that much of the materials and craftsmanship that built the temple of God in Jerusalem under Solomon came from Tyre. Tyre was involved in the decorative glorification of the Solomonic temple. And it was beauty, it, it, was, it was the business capital, it was wealth. And Ezekiel began to prophesy against this city in chapters 26 to 28. The first thing he does is Ezekiel prophesies against the city-state as a whole. And then we find that when he comes to chapter 20, well, in, in chapter 27, he then begins to speak against what we call of the, of the leader or prince of Tyre that, that's mentioned. Now, there's a recurring theme that comes through these chapters. And the theme is one of pride and arrogance that the city of Tyre has. And then Ezekiel moves to the human leader of Tyre. And, and again, it's the same theme. The city was arrogant and full of pride. The human leader at that time was arrogant and full of pride. But then what happens is, is in Ezekiel chapter 28, having spoken about the human leader of Tyre, it seems that from 28 verse 11, he begins to prophesy against some sort of spiritual being that was in some way linked to the city of Tyre at that time. So let, let's pick that up in Ezekiel chapter 28. We'll start in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas. Yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you've gained riches for yourself and gathered your gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you've set your heart as the heart of a God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you the most terrible of nations, and they shall draw the swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you say before him who slays you, I am a God, but you shall be a man and not a God. In the hand of him who slays you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now this is where things change. In verse 1, in the New King James Version, it says, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. But here in verse 12, it is no longer prophesying against the prince of Tyre, but a different word is used, the king of Tyre. And it's this change. We know from what I've just read, we didn't go back to how 
the city itself was lifted up. But we, we see that this is a man. This is a human ruler who is so puffed up, so filled with pride, that he actually thinks he's a god. And God is going to show him who really is God. But now from this prince we move to a king. And as I read this, I want you to know it. notice that God no longer calls this new individual with a new title a man, but as we read it, it seems that this is a cherubim, a spiritual being. So let me read verse 12. Son of man, it's a new lamentation, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you to before kings that they might gaze at you. And so you can see in this picture, it seems that the prophecy... Now, it, it, you know, we always have to, have to take prophecy with a pinch of salt in the way that we are, we're trying to explain it. Uh, it's a lot, a lot better when you go to direct teaching passage in the Bible. But, but here it seems that, that, that there is a prophetic shift and that what Ezekiel is doing is describing some sort of angelic being. And this angelic being, as, as we, we see, was the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. And then verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, who was in Eden, the garden of God? Well, God was there, Adam was there, Eve was there, but also Satan was recorded of being there in the garden of God. So scholars will often look at this and say, ah, here is a clue that we are having an indication of Satan himself, of what he was like, of what happened to him. He was in the garden of God. And then we have this beautiful picture of him. And we have this phrase twice. You were the anointed church, sorry, cherub who covers. The anointed cherub who covers. Well, what is a cherub? This is important. A cherub is an angel, but not just any angel. It's a special angel. If you keep your finger in Ezekiel, but turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. And verse 18 we have the Ark of the Testimony. And God is explaining how this Ark of the Testimony is to be built. Now, anybody ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Well, that's a pretty good representation. It's a big box 
with two long poles on either side so that the priests could carry it. But, but look, there's, there's a cherub that's involved in it. 25 verse 18. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And the ark in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. We also hear about uh, the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 10. But, but here is a picture. Remember, the things that are in the ark and the tabernacle, these things were a scale model of heavenly realities. Remember the book of Hebrews talks about, uh, about, about a temple not made with hands, the true holy of holies that Jesus entered into in heaven. Well, the tabernacle, the temple, and the ark, all these things were scale models. It's like when Westfields, anybody remember before Westfields was built? And uh, it was just a wasteland. Well, what they did is they made a scale model of what Westfield would look at. You could go and look at it. It was a scale model. It was about, uh, well, it was as big as a table. But and you could go and you could see what they were going to do. They had little, um, little people in it and little trees. And it was a scale model. It wasn't Westfield. You couldn't walk in it. It wasn't real. But it was a scale representation and model of the real thing that was going to come. Well, that's a bit like the Ark of the Covenant, the priesthood. These things were scaled earthly models that represented eternal truths uh, and, and, and eternal things. And so here we have a picture of cherubim. They're special angels. They're like guarding angels. And the picture is, is that we've got the Ark here. And on either side, we have these covering cherubim. And they are touching wings. And they are covering the cherubim. And the thing is, their faces are looking down into the very ark. These cherubs are guarding, covering angels. They are representative of real angels. There are real cherubs. And although we, we, we can't get into too much detail, that wouldn't be wise, these cherubs had something very important to do with the glory of God, covering and guarding the glory of God. Notice that the cherubim were looking into the ark. They weren't looking away. They weren't hiding themselves from the glory of God. On the contrary, they were the covering on the mercy seat. They were looking into the glory of God. And so it seems that this cherubim that we're talking, who is, who is beautiful in all his ways, uh, the, the pinnacle, it seems, of God's creation until God created mankind. Uh, beautiful workmanship. The anointed cherub, Ezekiel 28, 14, who covers, was established on the mountain of God. And so it looks like this picture of, of Satan, the anointed cherub, that he had access into the presence of God and also was able to withstand the full glory of God in some sort of guardian covering way. Amazing, this 
angel must have been tremendous in its power and its ability, created perhaps to withstand the full glory of God. Now, we charismatics can hardly take any of the glory of God. You ever seen a charismatic prayer line? And you're praying for people, bang, bang, they're falling down, bang, bang, bang. Well, why are they falling down? Well, unless it's learnt habit or psychology, and that's possible in some cases, what happens is the power of God came upon me. And the next thing I know, I was fallen under the power of God. These things happen in revival times. Why? Why would you fall under the power? Well, one of the reasons is, if it really is the power of God, your body is not in a situation to be able to take much of the power of God. In the Bible they said, hey, we've got to be careful. If the glory of God turns up, we'll all die. Our body won't be able to take it and we'll, our spirit will leave our bodies because our body can't take the glory of God. When the cloud entered the temple on that first day of dedication, do you remember the priests couldn't minister because of the glory of God? And our bodies, you know, you are saved, you're being saved and you shall be saved. What part of you is already 100% saved? Your spirit, you're born again, your new nature. What part of you is being saved and sanctified? Your soul. And what part of you is not saved at all in any way? Your, your body. We thank God for healing, which are signs of God's blessing and signs of one day. But our bodily hope is in the resurrection. And, and I don't want to go too much down this line, but I tell you what. You wait till the day of resurrection. You wait till the day of glorification. In the back of my garden, I have this huge oak tree. It's been there for hundreds of years. It's nearly up to this roof. It is huge. And I look at that oak tree. And when the little acorns fall, and it just amazes me. I'll pick up one of these acorns. And I'll look at this acorn. And I'll look at this tree. And I think to myself, my body is this acorn. But come the day of glorification... Come the day of resurrection, come the day of rapture, then my body, this acorn, is going to be transformed into a mighty oak in the twinkling of an eye. Why? So that our body can take the type of glory that we are going to be carrying and walking in forever and ever. And so this angel had a powerful, powerful body. Remember, we know that the devil sinned against God because he thought he could be God, didn't he? You see, the theme here in this passage is pride. We had that human leader of Tyre who thought that he was so wonderful, so glorious, he thought he was a god. The people themselves, the city themselves, thought they were a cut above everybody. They were filled with pride. Well, it looks like Satan had his throne there at the time because they were reflecting everything that he was and that he is. And we should never diminish or, or, or mock the devil or, or just, just, you know, when you're fighting an enemy, you, you better realize what you're up against. That's the first thing. You don't go into war without understanding the strength of your enemy. You, you, you pay your enemy respect. People have lost battles and wars because they disrespected the enemy that was coming against them. You hear what I'm saying? And, and people say, oh, oh, the devil is under my feet. Well, it, it doesn't look like he's under many people's feet at the moment. Oh, in the name of Jesus, I cast him out of the world. Well, he doesn't look like he's very much cast out of the world. In fact, the enemy looks like he's doing quite well for himself. Is that right? We have to be sober in our understanding of these things. 
And, and he wasn't some little angel that, that thought he could... Uh, he actually thought that he could overthrow God. Now, that's pride, but it tells you what sort of power he was carrying, doesn't it? It tells you what sort of access it... It tells you what sort of, what sort of individual this was. So we don't denigrate him. We don't fear him. We submit to God. And uh, he will flee from us. But neither do we despise him. We don't get into those things. We do what needs to be done. When you fight the enemy and the enemy fights you, you deal with him. You don't go on about it. We don't need to do war chants and war dances. We don't have to put on our war paint and do all these things like charismatics do. You just deal with him when he comes at you. You deal with him unmercilessly as he deals with us unmercilessly. So here's this picture. And, um, and, and also, just, just a little thing. Has anybody ever heard that rock music came from the devil? Okay. Where does all this thing about the devil and music come from? Well, there's a passage here in the New King James, and it speaks in verse 13 about his precious stones and everything. And then it speaks in verse 13, it says, The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes were prepared for you on the day that you were created. And some people read far too much into that. We don't actually know what those words mean. But some people say, ah, these are worship instruments and that, and that the devil was the lead worship leader um, in heaven at the time and that's why he loves rock music. Well, that's a little bit heavy to read into that, to be honest with you. And I've known pe people preach series on this from that and um, it seems that the devil hates rock music but he loves country music. So you can tell, you could, yes, yes, we've got a witness. So it's, it's interesting. <laughs> All music can be used for good or, or for bad, can't it? But nevertheless, he obviously had a great role of honoring God and a great role with the glory of God. And here we have him. Your heart was lifted up. You sinned on the mountain of God. Uh, I cast you to the ground. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Do you know when we preach the gospel, when we love one another, when we bring the kingdom in all its forms, Satan falls like lightning. That's what unseats him from his power. And God threw him down. And we know that Revelation says a third of the angels went with him. God threw him down because of his pride. Now, this is important because 1 Timothy 3 verse 6 gives us an insight into this special sin of the enemy. It says when Paul is warning in 1 Timothy 3.6 about, um, about putting people in leadership. He says when you're putting people as an overseer or a leadership and not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. 1 Timothy 3.6. Now, let, me, let us go now to Isaiah 14, another passage that many people turn to believing that there is an insight here into the character, nature, and origin of Satan, the fallen angel, Isaiah 14. We know that Revelation tells us that Satan has a destiny, and that destiny is the lake of fire. Isaiah chapter 14. And the reason that he's so angry and getting angrier and trying to do is because he knows his time 
is short. Isaiah chapter 14. Now here is a prophecy now against the king of Babylon. It's a prophetic taunt against an arrogant king of Babylon. The proud ruler will be utterly destroyed in verse 11. But from verse 12, again, it seems that the prophet is now addressing a spiritual ruler or perhaps an angel. So let's read this in verse, in Isaiah 14, verse 12. You have this in different ways in different versions, but here's New King James. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt, exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This is what we often call the five I wills of Satan. You see how assertive he is? You see how he wants God's job? You see how he rises up in pride and arrogance? But this is what the prophet prophesies in verse 15. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you, and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble and shook the kingdoms? And so here in this passage we have, as I said, pr prophetic material is quite difficult to, um, uh, to explain. And it, it seems he's moving to a man and then to a spirit and then back to a man. And, uh, but, but these things, this, this word where it says in verse 1, how you've fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Well, this word Lucifer, this, this Lucifer, you ever heard the phrase Lucifer? Actually, it's not really a name at all. It's actually Latin, Lucifer, for Christ, uh, not for, for light carrier. Lucifer, light carrier. And the word Lucifer comes from the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. And so from that Latin translation, they had light carrier, Lucifer. And so the New King James and the Old King James have carried that phrase in and it's become like a, a, proper, a proper name. And, and, but really what we're talking about here is the, the son of the morning. In other words, this, this being fell from a great height of great glory and great closeness to God. So these are just a few passages that people will often refer to. And uh, the key thing that's here that just illustrates, I suppose, uh, at, at, at least illustrates 1 Timothy 3.6, is that the major attribute and motivation of the devil is glory. Glory. He wanted God's glory. When we talk about glory, God's glory, what do we mean? I often found that that many people, you start talking about God's glory, they don't really know what it is. It's almost like to them a, a mystical thing. God's glory, oh, 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 it's when I feel his presence. Or God's glory, it's when preaching touches a heart and gets them saved. Or God's glory, oh, it's everywhere in, in a beautiful sunset. What is God's glory? 
Well, God's glory, basically, uh, we, we can look at God's glory in two ways. The first way is God's glory is his reputation. Okay? His reputation. It's the two R's. Reputation, radiance. That's what God's glory is. There's a lot more to it that, but God's reputation. And so the glory of God is who he is, his character. The glory of God is the testimony. This Bible is filled with the glory of God because it talks about his acts, what he's done, how he's delivered. It talks about his character and his nature, who he's, what he's like, his reputation. This is, this is his glory. You can think of great men and women throughout history and, and they have a sort of a limited earthly glory. You think about the superstars of today. You think of the David Beckham. He's got an earthly glory in the sense that he's got such a great reputation of being a footballer and well-deserved. He earned his reputation, didn't he, for England and for Manchester United. And so when he walks into a room, he's not the best footballer now, but he walks into a room and everybody stops. It's David Beckham, little kid. Who? You mean you've never heard of David Beckham? Let me tell you something about who he is and what he's done. You hear what I'm saying? It's the, they're glorifying him. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the same with God, God's reputation. And God is jealous for his reputation, for who he is, for his nature and his characteristics and his acts. That's, that's his reputation. The second is his radiance. This, this is when God just shows up with his presence. You think of Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain and, and, and the light that shone from him, that was God's glory. Remember Moses when he went up to be with the Lord on the mountain and he came down? I mean, he was just in God's reflected glory. You know, uh, Chris Shimon, he went on his honeymoon. He, he's, he's not here right now. He's probably upstairs listening to this, which I'm glad. And, and he came back. And everyone's going, where have you been on holiday? Oh, I've been to Bali. We can tell that. Why? Because of his suntan. He has obviously been basking in the radiance of the sun. And, and it's reflected on his features. Well, look at uh, Moses when he came down. Imagine, his face must have been like a hundred football floodlights all concentrated into one. He came down and this beam of light that was coming from his face was so dazzling, more dazzling than the sun, that people said, please put a veil over your face. Well, if that's the reflection of getting a suntan from God's glory, what must God's glory be like? And what must have Satan been basking in as he was there as an anointed cherub that covers? And Satan wants that. Satan wants God's reputation to be destroyed and he wants his reputation to be enhanced. He wants his glory. He wants, he wants to replace God. And so Satan wanted God's glory, seeks God's glory. And because of that, he hates God's glory. So you say, well, you know, we're talking about spiritual warfare uh, and, and you're talking about the general of the armies of darkness, and so we don't, you know, we have a book that we can look at to find out about him, and you say, well, which way is he going to come at us? He's going to come at us any way where he can rob God of his glory, whatever he can do. That's why he loves it when ministers fall or people who are prominent Christians fall. The devil loves it 
because he's attacking the glory of God. That's why he loves it when, 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 he can, when the church is in division. And, and we will find out that actually what the devil does is he looks for places where we allow him into our lives and our churches where he can get a foothold. We'll look at that in Ephesians. Don't give the devil a foothold. And we'll look before that verse. And it talks about all the things, a, a, a number of sinful activities, most of them based in selfish pride, sinful activities where the devil can get in and destroy God's glory. He, he hates God's glory. And because he hates God's glory, guess what? He hates God's most glorious creation, humanity. He hates us. Why? Because the devil, as glorious as he was before he fell, the devil was not made in God's image. I think that must very much annoy him. I think he must be very annoyed about the fact that on planet Earth, there are finite human beings, and each one of them is a reflection. I know in a fallen man, I know we've fallen, I know we're sinful, but nevertheless... Each one of us is still a broken, mirrored reflection of the God that he covered and served until he fell. Every time the devil looks at you, he sees God. Even though you're fallen. No matter how fallen a human being is, no matter how sinful a human being is, no matter how anti-God a human being is, when the devil sees them, he sees like father, like son. And so the devil is out to destroy humanity. He's out to destroy that which is created to reflect God's humanity. That's why he hates worship. That's why he hates obedience. He hates anything in our lives that brings God glory. He hates it when we worship him with our hearts. When we sing praise to him. The devil hates praise. Of course he does. It's logical. He hates praise. He hates it when we love one another. He can't stand it because he remembers that love comes from God. Love is God. He hates it. He hates it when we love one another. He hates the message of the blood. He hates it when we forgive one another. He hates it when, when, we, when we walk in the fruit of the Spirit. He hates the fruit of the Spirit. He hates it when, when, when God is glorified in our hearts through obedience because he was disobedient and tempts and tests us. We'll look at him next week. We'll go and have a look at some of his names and, and how we deal with him. We'll look at his name, Satan, that means accuser and slander. He slanders us. He accuses us. But thank God uh, we have an advocate in heaven. He accuses us. He's the accuser of the brethren, the Satan of the brethren, but he's been thrown down and who accuses us before God day and night. But we overcome him by our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. What's that? It's the blood of Jesus' sacrifice and the testimony of our ongoing experience with God. He's the temper, tempter, the tester. We'll see how Jesus dealt with, dealt with him. He's the dragon, the serpent, the destroyer, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. He's Bealiel, Beelzebub, Lord of the flies, of the dunghill, the evil one. And these things will help us know how he's going to come at us. But I finish on this, pride. 
pride. God hates, I believe God hates the sin of pride more than any other sin. You just have to read through Proverbs. And you see again and again, two times, three times, God hates pride. God hates pride. Pride, pride is at the origin of all sin. You take any sinful activities, you can trace it back to pride. And this is the characteristic of Satan, the main characteristic of Satan, through which everything else comes. Self-glory and self-pride, self-promotion, and God threw him down. And so we need to go to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, help me. Don't, don't, don't assume that you don't struggle with pride because if you don't think that you struggle with pride, you're probably proud. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to show us. It's one of those planks in our eye things. You know what I'm saying? There's a, I often pray to the Lord about different things. I said, Lord, please help me see what I can't see. Because I assume that there's planks in my eyes. I assume it. I assume that there's blanks. I'm not going to see them unless the Lord speaks them or, or, or to be open to correction from somebody else. You know, pride will isolate you. Pride will, will bring you into deception, another work of the enemy. Pride, it comes so quickly out of nowhere, is one of the chief things that we need to be against. Because as you know, pride comes before a... I wonder where that came from, from what we've read today. So as we move forward into some of the activities of the enemy next week, and we'll be focusing on how Jesus did warfare against Satan. It's amazing, isn't it? that Jesus was uh, seemed to be left alone, according to Scripture, all his life for 30 years. We don't hear of any activity of the enemy with him. We know the enemy tried to stop him being born. We know that all those children that died, that was Satan behind that, trying to get at Jesus. But then there's this period of quietness. But the moment that Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit, he becomes a threat. And then he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And, uh, and just, uh, just before he reads that, he is baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And Mark says that as soon as the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, what's the first thing the Holy Spirit did? He ekbalowed him. It's the Greek word for threw out. And he thrust through Jesus into the wilderness. And the devil came and tested him. And we're going to see that Jesus, just as we were told in Ephesians 6, he modeled something for us. The only offensive weapon he used against the enemy was what? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we're going to find out how he used his sword that day and how we are also to use our sword when the devil attacks. We can hit him back with the Word of God. Well, tonight at the uh, 7 o'clock Holy Spirit fire service, we're going to be praying for people's needs. And I'm also going to be uh, speaking... Um, on facing up to, um, I keep forgetting what the word is, um, facing up to barrenness, barrenness, spiritual barrenness, facing up to the barren place that Europe is and how, and how the Holy Spirit helps us and the word of God helps us to believe God that one day those that are barren are going to shout more than those that have had children and how God is one day going to give us the breakthrough if we believe him and don't give up. So God bless you all.